you remain standing with me as we read Romans 8, verses 10 through 13. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Amen. You may be seated. So as we return this morning to the ninth chapter of Mark's gospel, we find ourselves, much like the apostles, seated at the feet of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, the master teacher. It is incumbent upon us then, as followers of Jesus Christ, to take great care how we listen. Be careful how you hear the word of the Lord. As we join together with those apostles seated at Jesus' feet, I thought it okay this morning for me to allow you to remain seated as we read from the ninth chapter of Mark's gospel. We pick it up in verse 42. This is the word of God. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And all God's people said, Father God, would you make this book live to me? In it, would you show me yourself? Would you show me myself? Would you show me my Savior? Would you make this book live to me? For it's in his precious name we pray. Amen. We began like this. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. In Matthew's parallel, we read this. Woe to the one by whom temptation comes. Great trouble. Great punishment. Woe upon the one that would cause one of these little ones to stumble. It would be better for that man to have a great millstone tied around his neck and to be thrown to the bottom of the sea than to cause one of these little ones to sin. Now in ancient Palestine, if you wanted to grind grain for making bread or some similar product, you would use heavy stones called millstones. And in many homes, they would have had their own millstone. It would have been of the size and weight that made it manageable, even by hand, for a woman to work this millstone. But there were other, much larger millstones, like giant discs, so heavy that it would require a donkey to move this thing as it rolled over the top and ground down the grain. This is the type of millstone. This is the stone that Jesus is referring to here. And he's saying, it would be better for you to have one of these giant stones, a stone too large for any man to lift, it would be better for you to have one of these stones tied around your neck to be thrown to the bottom of the sea where you will drown and die than to cause one of these little ones to sin. Now, as we have discussed to the Jewish people, 
the sea was a terrifying thing. Now, the Sea of Galilee, they were comfortable there because it was really a lake. But out in the open ocean waters, dark and deep, where there were unimaginable monsters, unknown terrors awaited men. It was a terrifying thing to even contemplate being cast into the sea, much less so with a weight around your neck to be dragged to the bottom and there to drown, pinned to the ocean floor, as if you offer no resistance whatsoever to this weight, pinned to the bottom of the ocean floor where you succumb to unconsciousness and then death. This was perhaps the most horrifying thought imaginable to an ancient Jewish man. He's saying here, you'd be better off volunteering for this than to cause one of these little ones who believes in me to sin. Now, there's a number of theories about who these little ones are. You'll remember the placement of where Mark has placed this teaching within his gospel. It seems as though Jesus is still in Capernaum. They're in the house of Peter and Andrew. And you'll remember that he had called a little boy over to himself. He had brought the little boy over into the crook of his arm, perhaps lifted him up on his knee. And he said this, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Then in Matthew's account, we also read Jesus speaking about the fact that we must come to him with faith like a child. And so many people, they hear this morning's text, and they immediately assume what Jesus is saying, and here is, take great care that you do not cause children to sin. But I don't think that can be it. I don't think that all Jesus is speaking to here is literal kids. You'll remember that what he has said is, to receive a child in his name. To receive a child in his name is to serve, is to care for, is to watch out for, is to put yourself beneath even the lowliest, the most helpless, the most insignificant members of God's family. So it seems to me that it's something very similar to that that Jesus is speaking to. And you'll notice here that he says, it is a little one who believes in Jesus. This is a believer. Maybe, perhaps, he's thinking back to that believer that was casting out demons in his name. But this is a believer. I don't believe he's talking exclusively about children, although there certainly are young children who are believers. He's talking about a believer, perhaps, not, not exclusively a physical baby, but a spiritual babe. One who's still dependent upon milk rather than solid food. One who looks around him and relies on others to show him the path, to lead him, to teach him, to correct him, to instruct him. That those are the ones that he's speaking of here, and he's saying, to give a cup of cold water to one such as this is to receive a reward which you cannot ever lose. But to cause one of them to stumble, rather than to serve them, to teach them, to come alongside them to help carry their burdens, to instead come alongside and cause them to sin, you would be better off thrown into the dark and deep an unknown and terrifying ocean with a weight around your neck where you are pinned to the bottom, where there, as your lungs begin to burn, your body begins to burn, finally you give in and you give out a great gasp and you suck into your throat the warm, burning, salty ocean water until you finally black out and die. It would be better for that to happen. In fact, you earned something so much worse than that to happen to you than to cause one of these little ones to sin. That's the severity with which God takes us causing others, specifically those that believe in him and causing them to sin. Because to come alongside a believer, a fellow believer, one who is struggling, struggling through this life just as you or I, to come alongside them and to tempt them, to lead them to sin is to do the work of Satan. You'll recall that we have a very real enemy, and he is on the prowl. He is prowling about, seeking one to devour. So the question is, would you join him in this hunt? Would you aid him as he sets his traps? And before you say no, may I remind you that we ought not think you're just of some skeezy drug dealer out on the playground trying to tempt kids to try crack cocaine for the first time. Temptation comes in much prettier forms. 
especially when you're dealing with churchy people like us. Scandalize is the Greek word here. It's a word for stumbling. It's placing something in the path of another that they may trip over. I'm envisioning here one that's trying to walk through this life that's already treacherous enough. There's already enough stumbling blocks out there. It's this very real enemy pursues us and chases us and comes after us. Would you dare then throw a trap, throw a speed bump, throw a hurdle in their way and cause them to stumble as they walk along? So I ask you ladies, particularly you young ladies, students, I've, I own three daughters, but sadly this isn't reserved merely for young ladies. But women, the way that you dress, pictures that you post is there any chance it's causing men to stumble the way that you speak and you act and you flirt is there any chance that it's leading men or boys to sin and boys men before you get too cocky and sit there feeling all innocent you need not be reminded they act this way because of pressure from us we have sent a very clear picture that there is something that we are interested in, even Christian men, that we are interested in. If they won't provide it, we'll find someone that will. And in today's age, it's not even just suggestions. Through messages, men overtly pressure women to send pictures, and Lord knows what else. If this is you, be very, very afraid of what God is saying here. It doesn't matter what the culture says. Doesn't matter what all the rest of your friends think is acceptable. It does not even matter what your parents are willing to allow happen under the roof of their house. This is an abomination in the eyes of the living God, and it is before Him that you will stand in the day of judgment. But we don't just stop there. That's just a pet peeve of mine as a man with three young girls. There's so many other ways in which even people that carry themselves with out, outward modesty, what about your things? What about your car, your money, your house, your skills, your talents, your grades, your activities, even your Christian service and your acts of piety? Do you put those things out there in a way that might cause others to envy? Do you perhaps put those things out there specifically to cause others to envy? What about the way you handle God's word? What about the way you teach God's word, you handle God's word as you share it with the weaker, perhaps the newer Christians among you? you dare lead them towards faulty doctrine, even to the point that they would sin against the living God because you refuse to preach the hard truths, because you refuse to rightly handle the scripture? Do you preach one thing while living in absolute opposition to that thing and thereby sending the signal to this lesser brother that this is the way of the kingdom of God? What about the people in your own house? What about your children? What about your spouse? They see in you the way you live behind God's uh, behind closed doors. Do they see in you a picture of Christ-like character? Do they see in you someone that loves God, that delights in His Word, and that cherishes His children? Do they see in you a picture of one that truly believes in this gospel that you preach? If not, you may well be causing them to sin. Don't you see? This doesn't have to be an outward, active, ongoing pressure. It's the way that you walk. It's the way that you talk. It's the way that you carry yourselves. It's the looks that you give. It's the glances that you give. It's the things that you do when you think nobody else is watching. All of those things mount up to ways in which we cause others to sin because we could go on and on and on. There is no end to the ways in which we purposefully or sometimes thoughtlessly cause other people around us to sin. And Jesus is making crystal clear they are mine. I purchased them at a great price. 
By the work of my spirit, I am making them pure and clean and holy because they are mine. Keep your hands off. Don't you dare cause them to stumble. And he shifts. He shifts from our responsibility with regards to the other, the spiritual children that are around us, to our own walk. Verse 43. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go into hell to the unquenchable fire. Notice the repetition now. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. So did you notice? Are you keeping me honest? I hope you are. Where'd verse 44 and 46 go? And everybody looks down. We've covered this, and, and we're, we're, I want to get to the Lord's table. And so we've, we're not going to fully unpack this. I would encourage you to go back and look at our sermon on Mark 7, 16, where we cover this. But in some of the earlier manuscripts, and, and some manuscripts that were used for some earlier translations, like the King James Bible, the best manuscripts they had, had verses 44 and 46. But then as they discovered newer, more trustworthy manuscripts, they found 44 and 46 were not there. So when you come to the ESV or newer translations, they've removed them. But just like the text that we talked about back in, back in Matthew uh, 7, 16, it does not change the meaning of the text one iota. Because what you will find is that some well-meaning scribe took the words of verse 48 and simply inserted them after each one of those warnings to drive home a point, to try and add some, some purpose and some drive behind what Jesus said. We lose nothing. Dear friends, do not ever fear men finding newer transcripts. Manuscripts, excuse me. Do not ever fear men continuing to dive deep and struggle to understand the Word of God because we have nothing to fear. The Word of God endures forever. His Word is true and will remain true until the very end. And so we celebrate these kind of discoveries. And so we don't get wrapped up in that. But here's what he's saying, right? This is an ongoing teaching. What he was saying here, this would have been an ongoing teaching. This wouldn't have been the first time that these men heard this. This would not have been the last time. I believe that's why you find it in different places throughout the synoptic, synoptics, because Jesus would have continually been saying this. I think this would have, been, would have been one of those early Christian maxims, those things that they memorize and they recite to each other, even long before we had the written gospels, the gospel records were given to them. And so he's saying, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. For it is better for you to enter life, to enter the kingdom of God, lame and cripple and blind, than to be thrown into hell. See, so much of what we know about hell comes from the teaching of Jesus Christ, and with good reason. Because it is he who came to lay down his life to set us free, to free us from the threat, the reality of hell. So, so much of what we learn, so much of our doctrine of hell comes from Jesus' teaching. And now again, I, I want to get to the Lord's table today, and so we're not going to do a full proper survey of all that Jesus has taught about, the king, about hell, and we're going to talk about that at some point in the near future, I'm certain. But as you just look through this, this picture of what he's painting here in verse 48, where the worm does not die and the fire does not quench, the fire is not quenched. We'll see throughout Jesus' teaching, it's also referred to as a place of eternal punishment, unending death and destruction, torment day and night forever and ever, a furnace of fire where men weep and they gnash their teeth, a pit of dark, burning brimstone and sulfur, a lake of fire. Now, people often wonder, is this a literal picture of hell? Is hell a literal dark place with sulfur and burning fire? I don't know. But I can assure you one truth, that we are limited in our human language. And what you would find in hell is something much, much worse than our minds can ever imagine in this lifetime. Something much less bearable than what we think of when we think of burning fire that will not be quenched. 
something much less tolerable than what we think of when we think about unending punishment. We are not acquainted with the depths of hell. If Jesus speaks in something other than literal speech here when he talks about fire and darkness and brimstone, you can rest assured it will not be something lesser than that. It will be something greater, much deeper, much less bearable. And so the word that he uses here for hell is genon, that is Gehenna. You see, in the Old Testament, you'll usually find these two words. In the Old Testament, you'll find the word Sheol in Hebrew, which is translated as Hades in Greek. This is the abode of the dead. This is a place where dead men, both righteous and unrighteous, this is the place where they go. All men die, and all men go into the earth. All men pass out of this land of the living, and they go somewhere else. That is what those names refer to more, more often than not. And yet we see here he's talking about Gehenna, a place of indescribable punishment, reserved for the lost. It comes from the valley of Hinnom. There was a valley on the southwest corner of Jerusalem, a deep valley. This was a place where prior to Israel, men would go to sacrifice their children to the false god called Molech. It's a place where they would go and, and seeking to appease this god, they would literally sacrifice their children. And even after Israel had come into the land, even after God had placed his kings upon the throne, even as his prophets came and warned his men against this, the people continued in this abominable practice. So eventually there came a king named Josiah, and he heeded the word of the Lord and seeking to bring an end to this practice. <clears throat> seeking to bring an end to this practice, he decided he was going to desecrate this place. And so by the time of Jesus' land, he made it a dumping site. By the time of Jesus walking the earth, in the time of this writing, it became a garbage dump. It became a place where there was refuse and bodily waste and animal carcasses and the bodies of executed criminals was all dumped into this place and the way that you eliminate rubbish like this is with fire and because there was an ongoing source of fuel the fire never went out and the worms never ran out of things to eat this is the description that jesus is giving us from hell here now he's take these words about the fire which is not quenched and where the worm does not die he takes this from the very last line in isaiah's prophecy in the book of isaiah the very last line he talks about that day of judgment he talks about the weight of God's judgment. He talks about looking into this place and seeing the torment of those that have rejected God for their entire lifetime, those that have refused to walk in faith. He sees as we look down upon their bodies as they suffer forever and ever and ever. This is hell. I don't know if you've noticed, but I am working very hard to regulate my tone right now because I know about myself that when I speak about something that is particularly weighty, when I find myself impassioned in, in and, and, and frankly frightened by some of the truth that I find in God's word, I know how my tone can just elevate, but I want to take great care here. Number one, we, we, know, we know that most of the world doesn't talk about hell. This is not exactly the way to fill pews and make friends to speak about hell, but even among those that speak about hell, so many pastors, so many preachers that stand up and preach about hell, they rely on almost nothing more than pure emotion. Some of them almost bordering into something like glee. As if they wear it as a badge of honor. They'll beat their chest and say, you know, I'm a throwback preacher. I bring it real. I talk to you about hellfire and brimstone. As if, as if they delight in shocking men with speaking in the most outrageous terms where scripture never goes. In the most outrageous terms and just relying on pure emotion to whip you into, in, into some kind of frenzy. Dear friends, God does not need the inflection in my voice. God does not need me to rant and scream and jump around on this stage to convince you of the horrors of hell. And he certainly doesn't need me to take glee or joy in shocking you with the depths of what's taught here. We know that even God himself does not delight in the destruction of the wicked. This is why we find that it was his will to crush his son. That he may save the wicked. 
So I find no joy in the words that I'm about to share with you, and God doesn't need my emotions. Instead, it is my desire that I would deliver this to you with the sobriety, with the weightiness of a doctor walking into a room to tell a man that his cancer is going to lead to his death. If you are filled with the Spirit of God, these words will cause you to tremble. If you are not, there is no level of, level of theatrics that's going to change that. So I ask you to hear well the words that we're about to read. Because what we see here is the, de the depth of hell, the horrors of hell. Again, understanding that we are limited by human language when we talk about these things. Very limited when we think about this. Just as man is all too happy to look towards heaven and say, you know what, we can't possibly explain it in this lifetime. The same must surely be true of hell. So we see here, God's made it clear here and everywhere else that hell is a place, originally a place created for Satan and for his demons. We read that in Matthew 25. That is those who first sought to overtake God. Those that first sought to make a name for themselves and overthrow the kingdom of heaven. That hell is a place created for them. And that all of us, every single one of us, those who both by nature and by will have joined in this rebellion, that we ourselves have earned our place there by refusing to give on, uh, honor to God the way he deserves, by rejecting the glory of God, while worshiping at the altar of self. Every single one of us have earned for ourselves a place in the pits of hell eternally. Eternally. See, men, they, they try to pacify themselves. They try to give themselves comfort by preaching that hell isn't forever, by teaching that hell is not eternal, that it's just a place of temp temporary punishment. That because the, the sins of this lifetime are carried out within time, because they're temporal sins that were carried out in this lifetime, that surely hell can't be forever. That surely while heaven is forever, while the eternal life enjoyed by the saints in heaven, while surely that is forever, that the hell, the second death that is found for wicked men in hell, that that comes with it an annihilation, a cessation of existence. That what happens is men go to hell, and sure, maybe they suffer for a time, and maybe it's really, really bad, but then God just calls an end to it. And then you just exist no more. But this is to clearly reject the straightforward teaching of Christ. Eternally, over and over and over again, we're told a fire which is not quenched, smoke which goes on forever and ever, unending punishment. In Matthew 25, Matthew 3, Jude 1, Daniel 12, Revelation 14, 2 Thessalonians 1, you go on and on and on and on. Hell is eternal. But you see this faulty teaching. It's driven by men that belittle the majesty of God. Because we look, we think so little of God. We've shrunk God down into our own image that we cannot possibly imagine that these little sins that we have committed could possibly deserve an infinite wrath of an infinite God. That it would take all eternity for us, to, for us to suffer, continually pay to satisfy the wrath of the living God. And this is because, again, we're so denigrated, we so overlooked the weight, the majesty, the worth, the might, the glory of the living God. So we have no clue what it really means to offend him. We have no clue the wrath that we are due because of the offenses that we have lobbed against him. We have no idea the depth of his wrath against us. And so we denigrate it. We shrink it down in just a temporary punishment. We dare stand before the living God in light of his straightforward teaching. We cry out, that's not fair. And I have to imagine God standing there saying, who are you, old man, to answer back to me? Who are you, old man, to write my scriptures to tickle the ears of men? Who are you, old man, to comfort yourself to sleep while living in sin by telling yourself it won't be that bad, it will only be for a moment? See, friends, we must understand that the greatest, the very best, the most Christ-like person you've ever known walking this earth, they have so offended the infinitely glorious God that after 10 million years of punishment in a place called hell, they will be no sooner to the end than when they had first begun. They will never be able to 
pay him the debt that he owes. They will never be able to satisfy the wrath that they have earned. So they must suffer eternally in a conscious punishment called hell. And their souls today, but after the resurrection, their bodies will join them. Their bodies will join in this punishment forever and ever and ever. You see, pain is manageable in this lifetime because we hope, perhaps even believe that it will come to an end. Even if that end is death, we're able to deal with pain in this lifetime because we always have that hope that at some point it will cease. That is not the case with hell. Hell offers no such mercy. Unending, eternal, night and day, day and night, no reprieve, no mercy. This is the picture of hell. Many preachers will also go on to say that God doesn't actually send anyone to hell, that men send themselves there. To a certain extent, this is true. It is our sin, in fact, which leaves us guilty before God, and it is our sin for which we pay in hell for all eternity. We have chosen, even those that have not heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, we have all chosen to rebel against the living God, and there, by extension, we have all chosen hell. And the scripture makes very clear, although it doesn't say this explicitly, the, the fact that scripture makes very clear that repentance is a gift from God, that repentance is a grace from God, that repentance only comes by the supernatural work of God in those that are his. We can say with great confidence that men in hell, that demons in hell, they do not repent. They do not worship God. That men in hell, where God's grace has been completely removed, they only grow in their wickedness. They only grow in their rejection of him. Instead of repentance, we only find greater sin there in hell. And so, in a very real sense, yes, men have sent themselves to hell. But listen to what Jesus says here. He said, it would be better off for you to suffer this physical, temporary loss than to be thrown into hell. Men are thrown into hell, not by Satan. For as we read in Revelation 20, Satan himself is thrown into hell, but by the only just judge, the one that we have offended. It is God who throws us into hell. Your hearts don't like that, do they? Your heart's a liar. Your heart wants to make much of God, much of yourself, and little of God. Your heart wants to make excuses for your sin. Your heart wants to assure you that a loving God would never do such a thing. I know this because my heart does it too. But your heart is a liar. Your heart would lead you in places that the Holy Scriptures would not go. The heart would lead you to live completely contrary to the straightforward truth of the gospel. It is simply not biblical to say anything other than God sends men to hell. It is right, it is good, it is just. And when the day comes that we're finally able to see rightly, no longer see through eyes stained with sin, no longer see through our selfish lenses of this lifetime, you will worship him all the more. As he is glorified, as he pours out his wrath on the unjust in hell, just as he blesses those that are found righteous in Christ Jesus in heaven for all eternity. It doesn't need to make sense to your heart today. God has said it. By the power of his word and the work of his spirit, would you believe what he has said? Nor is it biblical to say that hell is merely to be separated from the presence of God. Now, Scripture does teach, that 2 Thessalonians 1 passage, 1, 9, it says this, that the unrighteous will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord. But what he's speaking of when he talks of God's presence here, he's talking about his blessing, his grace, his favor, the blessed presence of God that we will enjoy in heaven forever and ever and ever. So in one sense, yes, it is true to say that they are away from the presence, but it repeatedly we are taught through scriptures. Go back to the Psalter. Read all throughout the Psalms how man can go nowhere in all the universe and escape the presence of God. And Revelation 14, is Jesus is speaking to John about the horrors of hell, about the unquenchable fire, about those that are sent there. He talks about how they will be tormented night and day, day and night, forever and ever, with smoke 
and fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. The Lamb is Christ. Or listen to what Jesus warns his followers in Matthew 10. He says that they ought not fear those who kill the body, but rather fear the one, that is God. Fear the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. You see, we have not merely sinned against some inanimate spiritual force, some cosmic force in the world. We have sinned against the lawgiver, against our creator, against the very personable, personal living God. We've offended him. And therefore, this punishment of hell, it's not merely some automated response of the cosmos to our rebellion. This is a personal response of a personal God to personal beings who have offended and sinned against him. It's more than mere separation from God. Men spend their entire lives trying to live in separation from God. And may I assure you that men in hell wish they could escape the presence of God. Because while we enjoy his presence in eternity in heaven, those that are his, those that are found in Christ Jesus, that's what makes heaven heaven. You get this, right? Christianity is not all about a change of location. Good, I escaped hell, a place. Now I get to go to heaven, a place. Although they are places. Christianity is not about real estate. It's not about a change of location. It's about the living God. It's about your relationship to the living God and his disposition towards you. Do you see? What makes heaven heaven? It's because where God most fully makes his presence known and he blesses you forever and ever and ever as you glorify him forever and ever and ever. And hell, what makes hell hell? It is there where he pours out his wrath forever and ever and ever. It's all about your relationship with God. Men have made Christianity and all about a change of place, a change of destination. Forgetting that it's the living God with whom we must deal one day. While he allows us in this lifetime to turn our face and pretend as if he is not there. Yet we are without excuse. And the day will come when we must deal with him. We must stand before him as judge. And it is in his presence that we will either suffer for all eternity or it is in his presence where we will, endure, where we will enjoy unending glories. It's all about God. So Jesus warns his apostles on that day. He warns us today. Whatever the cost, a hand, a foot, an eye, whatever the cost, whatever you must do to avoid the temptation of sin, you must do it. Whatever it takes to flee that which would lead you to hell, you must pay the price. Whatever you must do. This is obviously not a call to self-mutilation. God's law spoke very clearly about such things. To cut yourself would be to be eliminated from the right to come into the place of worship. God's given us these bodies. They're a gift from him, and we're to use them to glorify him. He loves these bodies. For those that are his, they will one day be raised in glory. So no, this is not a call to self-mutilation. Beyond this, Jesus has made it very clear in his teaching that the originator of sin, the, the, the origin, the place, the seed, the root of sin is not in external things. It is in our heart. It is deep down within us. It's the filth of our heart that springs out and brings forth this sin. So no amount of external workings is going to eliminate the sin. But the temptation to sin in our lifetime, you could cut off every single limb. You could gouge out both your eyes. You could cut off your, your tongue and both your ears. And what you would find yourself is immobile, in darkness, unable to speak, unable to hear, trapped with an absolute wretch of a man, sinning just as much as you ever had. Unless God does a heart work in your life, unless he changes your heart in the way that only he can, unless God gives you a heart transplant, you will find yourself merely self-mutilated and every bit as much a sinner as you ever were. So that's clearly not what the call is here. So many people, they will say, well, you know, Jesus is speaking here in hyperbolic metaphor. He, he, what he's doing here is he's exaggerating in order to drive home a point. I disagree. Well, I do believe that he's speaking in a metaphor or something similar. He's not clearly, as I've just said, he's, he's not talking to us about actually harming ourselves. I do not believe for one moment that Jesus is exaggerating. Dear friends, this is war. 
ongoing spiritual war, and we are playing for keeps. Your enemy wants nothing more than to cause you to stumble and sin and be destroyed. He's working at every hour and every way to tempt you, to lure you away, to do whatever he has to do to lead you into sin, to lead you into the rejection of the living God. This is war, and the consequences, they are real and they are eternal. This is life and death, more so than anything in this lifetime, more so than anything in this world. This is life and death. But you see, so many brothers, they live this life. Now, they wouldn't say this outwardly. They wouldn't stand in a pulpit and say it. But you see how much they believe this deep down by the way they live. You can tell that their, that their utmost thought is, how much sin can I mess with and still get to heaven? How far can I follow the path of this world and still belong to the kingdom of God? Jesus is saying, no. This is war. How long will you tolerate hands and feet that betray you? How long will you abide treacherous eyes which lead you to sin and death? How long will you put up with these traitors that continue to lead you down the path to hell? This is war. And in war, you do anything you have to do. You win at all costs. Whatever the price, this is war. Jesus was not exaggerating. He was saying, would you get in the mud and do whatever it takes to win this war? Now I know what you're thinking. I hope this is what you're thinking. I hope. I hope what you're thinking is, wait a minute, dude. For two and a half years, you've been telling us there's nothing we can do to earn salvation. For two and a half years, you've been telling us that God has to do some kind of supernatural work in order for you to hear, to understand, to respond, to repent, and to believe in the gospel. You've been telling us for two and a half years that man is completely in, in, incapable of fleeing from sin. You've been telling us for two and a half years that this work of sanctification, it's all the work of the Holy Spirit in men. That there's nothing men can do to merit their salvation, their sanctification, their justification, their glorification. That it's all the Asians. They're all the work of God. There's nothing that you can do to set yourself free. And now you're telling us to work. Yes, yes, yes. Don't you see? God's chosen the means. That very word by which God created the stars in the heavens, that very word by which God calls dead men to life, that's the same word that he calls you to fight. Empowered by his Holy Spirit, there's my voice again. Empowered by his Holy Spirit, he calls you to fight. Like a shepherd calling his sheep. Those that are his, you will hear and you will respond. Like you're out there in the battlefield, and he's fighting the fight for you, but now he's sounding the trumpet because you're about ready to give up. You don't know why men endure to the end? Because your father calls you to endure to the end, and he empowers you to endure to the end. It's the working of the word and the working of the spirit, always together. That's the Christian life. It's the way it accomplishes this thing. I think we lay in bed in the morning and just go, okay, God, sanctify me. What's this going to look like? Like I just get up and be holy now? That's the next step? Just know you work. You fight. You strive. You flee. You, you cut stuff off, metaphorically. <laughs> you do whatever you must do to flee from the sin which would lead to your destruction. That was the meaning of this morning's New Testament text that David read. He says, if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Many of men have tried to put to death the, the, the deeds of the body by their own power, by their own abilities. You will always fail. You will always fail if only by the Spirit that you may live. It's only by our union with Jesus Christ that we are now dead to sin. We're no longer enslaved to sin. 
Any overcoming that you will have in this lifetime, it's by the power of the Spirit and the working of the Word. That's the reality. And so many men, they lay down their sword. They couldn't cut off an arm if they wanted to. They don't even know where their sword is. It's in a closet somewhere. They sure don't have a clue how to swing it. So they're saying, yes, it's this work to lead you to be truly repulsed. Be repulsed by the sin. He leads you in this lead you in this walk. As you see your sin as a thing which greatly offends the God that you love, if you see the sin as a thing for which your Savior died, as you see this thing which leads men to death, you'll be repulsed. You'll hate it. And as a pastor, may, me, may I tell you that one of those absolutely undeniable evidences that a man has truly come to repentance is when he will do whatever it has to, he has to do to flee from that sin. You want to know when a man's, man is done playing games? You want to know when he's not just playing church? He says, What's the cost? I will pay it. What must I do? I don't care what it does to my reputation. I don't care what people think of me. I don't care what I lose in the process. Whatever I must do to be separated from this sin, whatever boundaries I must put up to keep this sin away from me, I will do it because I know how it's offended my living God. And I hate it. I hate it. Dear friends, this is war. You do whatever you have to do to come through war alive. You lose limbs, you lose friendships, you lose relationships. You lose all the wealth of this world. Whatever it takes to come through this war alive, you do it. I'm pleading with you this morning. Because I know there's many of you that last night you worked for the enemy. You went places you ought not be. You entertained thoughts you shouldn't entertain. You had conversations you shouldn't have. Dear friends, I'm calling you in the name of the Lord to fight. Empowered by his spirit. Don't do it on your own. You can't do it on your own. But you fight. That's in part what this table represents this morning as we come here. We don't just proclaim Jesus' death and resurrection, although we do that. We don't just proclaim his death and resurrection until he returns, although we do that. We come here and we meet him. We are strengthened by him. We are nourished by him. We feast upon him and all that he is taking it into ourselves. How does that happen? I don't know. I don't know, because I just watched Chuck pour the juice, and I watched Dane cut the bread. Ordinary bread, ordinary juice, and yet somehow, for those that belong to Jesus Christ, for those that have been filled with the Spirit, for those who come in faith, knowing that they have not earned a place at this table, for those that come, they are nourished, they are strengthened. It's one of those blessed means by which God causes us to endure, and so we come. If that's not the deepest desire of your heart, if that's not where you are, if you believe that you could reach out one hand and take these elements while with the other hand clinging to sin, beware. Don't you dare do it. Sit this one out. Or get right with God in the moments to come. Because the consequences are very real. Father God, we praise you and we thank you. We thank you, Father, for the reality of your word. We thank you, Father, that you don't need us to add a thing to it, that there is nothing that we could add to it. We thank you, Father, by the power of your word and the working of your spirit, Father God, that you have set men free from sin, that we are no longer slaves, we are no longer entrapped. But Father, we can resist, we can fight, we can endure to the end. And Father, as we prepare to come to this table now to be nourished, to be fed, to be strengthened, Father, if there is one of us here with sin that we are clinging to, with pride that we are clinging to, with broken relationships that we are continuing in, 
Father, would you bring us to our knees? Would you bring us to the end of ourselves where we would submit wholly and completely that we could come to this table in a worthy manner, not with the righteousness that is our own, but the righteousness of Jesus Christ, and thereby be blessed. Father, all this we pray in your son's precious name. Amen.